everyone. Welcome to the Life of Jam live video podcast. You're watching season two, episode six. I call this one Writing Your Truth. And we have a special guest who I'm so excited to interview, Gina Frangello with Hi. She's the acclaimed writer of this beautiful book. You'll see how many post-its I have on it called Blow Your House Down. And um, this is her fifth book. It's an epic memoir. It's really like a magnum opus. Uh, It's selling like hotcakes. It's doing very well, but it's powerful. It's very deep and profound. Um, It's not anything that I expected it to be. And it's so beautiful. I'm very excited. By the way, if you want to watch old episodes of my podcast, season one and early episodes of season two, go to my website, WanitaEmance.com. So I'm going to bring Gina in in a moment, but let me read her fabulous bio. Gina Frangello's fifth book, The Memoir, Blow Your House Down, A Story of Family, Feminism, and Treason by Counterpoint Press, has been selected as a New York Times editor's choice. It has received starred reviews in Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, and Book Page, and has been included on many, many best of 2021 list, including LitHub, BookPage, and the Chicago Review of Books. She is also the author of four books of fiction, including A Life in Men, which is currently under development by Charlize Theron's production company, Denver and Delilah. And her other book, Every Kind of Wanting, is also by CounterPoint, and that was included on many 2016 best of lists including Chicago Magazines and the Chicago Review of Books. She is now a lead editor at Row House Publishing, and Gina brings more than two decades of experience as an editor, having founded both the independent press Other Voices Books and the fiction section of the popular online literary community, The Nervous Breakdown. Gina has also served as the Sunday editor for The Rumpus, the faculty editor for both the Tri-Quarterly Online and the Coachella Review, and the creative nonfiction editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books. Now, this is a resume. Her short fiction, essays, book reviews, and journalism have been published in such venues as Salon, the LA Times, the Boston Globe, BuzzFeed, Dame, and many other magazines, anthologies, too many to mention here. And her column, which I love, Not the Norm, runs on the Psychology Today blog. She runs Circe Consulting, a full-service company for writers with the writer Emily Rapp Black, who I love too. You can find all about her at www.ginafrangelo.com. Sorry, ginafrangelo.org. Welcome. Ew, it's so nice to be here. (laughs) It's amazing. Thanks for making time for us. I know you're a busy lady. (laughs) <laughs> it's release week, so it's a little insane. <laughs> and the release of the, actually the paperback version yeah. of this book, right? Exactly, exactly. My yeah. release parties tomorrow in actual person, which I didn't get to do at all for the first time around. Oh, how amazing. Where are you doing it at? At Exile in Booksville um, in oh. Chicago on Michigan Avenue in the old Fine Arts Building. I had my first book party at the Museum of um, Art in Riverside, and I always said I want it to be like Sarah Jessica Parker's book party. I want to wear like a fancy dress, and I want cupcakes and champagne. 
And, you know, I did it and it was during COVID, but there was that little lull. I got really lucky. So I hope your book party goes fabulous. I know it will. There will definitely be a fancy dress involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope we see some pictures. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, you know, what's really interesting is I've never had such, like, I just put it on Twitter and there's this blast of people just sharing it and we t- retweeting it. I think your book has really, you know, touched something in the zeitgeist right now. I really do about feminism, about femininity, about being brave and living your truth. And the book, I mean, it moved me and I had to keep on putting it down. And I was telling you before we went live that I'm a quick, very quick reader. I've always read fast, but this book took me almost a month because I savored it. And I also took my time with it. And I really wanted to, to really understand where you were going because it's about love, fear, letting go. We all know from the description that it's about a marriage's disintegration and some admitted infidelity. And of course it is. But to me, what I loved about your book, which is similar to what I loved about uh, Joan Didion's last couple of works, is that it had this strong undercurrent of grief. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Grief. Grief about loss, about family, grief surrounding your parents and your loss of your marriage, but also about your chosen family, your best friend, Kathy. Yeah. yeah. Right? And she was the catalyst for everything, don't you think? I mean, you say that in your book pretty much. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's sort of like her death was a catalyst of seeing a lot of things that were already in motion, right? Mm. Um, You know, Kathy had been a very close friend of mine since we were 16 years old. She was like Mm -hmm. a sister to me. She had been involved in every, every area of my life. She literally had my mother's former job. When my mother retired, Kathy took her job. Um, You know, she had been a part-time nanny to my kids. Um, You know, she was close to my ex-husband. I mean, she was just, she read for the magazine and book press that I edited. Like, she was just really deeply involved in my life. And um, after she was gone, there were a lot of holes and that I had to acknowledge for the first time. And and, um, our relationship was not without its own complications, but, but she... And I had both been extremely available to each other throughout, um, you know, the messiness of, of adulthood. And, um, and it's, it's certainly true that when she was gone, I did begin to see my life in a, in a new way. Yeah. I think you say in your book and I'm at page 163 that her death taught you to be alive by showing you how tenuous life was. Right. Yeah, I mean, she had a diagnosis of ovarian cancer, and um, it it was clear that she was not going to live a full life expectancy after that diagnosis. But she was two weeks away from remission um, in chemotherapy and the end of her chemotherapy when she died of a pulmonary embolism very suddenly, only wow. four months her diagnosis and and no one no one had expected anything to be that quick um so so it was shocking and um and just the fact that prior to her already very dire diagnosis 
she'd never been sick a, a day in her life, really, you know. And so mm -hmm. it, it was it was an awakening for sure. We were midlife. We were middle age. We were 43. Yeah. And in many ways, like the death of someone who's 43 years old is not like a tragedy because, you know, life is there's a lot of, of hardship in the world, mm -hmm. as we're seeing right now in Ukraine and so forth, you know, but it's like but you when you're 43 years old, you still think that you have all this time for all these yeah. other things to happen and to be all these other incarnations of yourself. And when I saw her life just really cut completely short within a four month period of time, it definitely changed my perception of time and my perception of like how I was living. Yeah. And you know what, what really touched me about that is my, me and my best friend, we've been best friends since we were 15 and I couldn't live without, there's, I think, what would I do without her? You know, I have my husband, but a female friendship like that, it's a different connection when they know your history and they've known you your whole life. Right. 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 Um, yeah. So do you want to read something just so uh, people sure. can hear? Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, we were actually, I guess, hold on, if you'll give me a second uh -huh. Find something. I um I would be happy to actually just read a tiny bit about Kathy since we're talking about her. Um, and I'll just I'll just read a couple pages. It's a it's a long chapter called Big Blonde. And it begins with a, a quote. Um, I've already considered the three philosophical problems worthy of prolonged reflection. Why are we here? Is there anything to eat? Where are our dead friends? And that's by Franz Wright. Years later, Kathy would claim we had met in the third floor girls' bathroom. But in my memory, she and I first spoke during the physics experiment involving razor blades. In both stories, she was crying. In her version, she was crying because Max, the best-looking guy in our class or maybe the school, didn't notice her. In my version, she raced from the classroom crying when Max held the razor blade to my wrist in jest, threatening to cut me, waiting for me to flinch. And I'd said, go ahead. If it'll get me out of physics, I'm all for it. And he laughed, but Kathy fled into the hall. I caught up with her in the third floor ba girl's bathroom, but what she told me in my memory wasn't that Max failed to notice her, but simply my father committed suicide. That wasn't funny. While I stammered some awkward high school girl apology, she held out her wrist, unnaturally pale and delicate for someone her height, and showed me a scar. I tried to kill myself after he did, she said. That's common. Kids whose parents commit suicide are at much greater risk. And in that moment, a friendship was born, a friendship which for many, which there may be no better metaphor than the fact that for the next 27 years, we remembered its origins differently. Soon after our bathroom encounter, Kathy took to calling me on the phone nightly to discuss her unrequited love for Max. At first, the gossip titillated me, but before long, I began having my mother tell her I wasn't home. The nakedness of her desperation made me squirm. I wanted her to maintain some dignity. In my neighborhood, where I spent as little time as possible, showing vulnerability never ended well, especially for girls. I kept my cards close to my chest, subtly trying to urge her to do the same. But Kathy did not accommodate my desires on this front, then or ever. While Max, an aspiring actor, kept himself busy as an extra in Hollywood films and engaging in threesomes with older girls, hovering hopelessly out of both of our leagues, she continued to call me, to stalk me in study hall, which we also shared with Max, pouring herself into my hands whether or not I wished to receive her. 
When I went away to college, the same college as Max, who had by then become a close friend, Kathy wrote to me faithfully. I believed she was using me to get closer to him. And in all probability, she was, at least initially. But then things shifted. Max intermittently receded, but Kathy always remained. A body joke at the ready, a cigarette in one hand and a drink in the other. She made herself an indispensable friend. She had foregone college and was working in an office and saved her money, scant though it often was, to come see me, whether I was studying in Wisconsin or England or following a whirlwind romance to New England. When I threw parties in graduate school, 70 people crammed into my kitchen. Kathy was always the first to arrive to help set up and the last to leave washing dishes with me at 4 a.m. In our 20s, she was by my side when I just developed interstitial cystitis, accompanying me on doctor's appointments and running errands with me to pick up my prescriptions. When I adopted my daughter, she became their first nanny, talking to, about them so much that other people assumed they were her children. I'll stop there, actually. It's, it's, uh, it, 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 it gets very emotional. I never get through it without weeping. <laughs> That's my favorite part of the book. It's Thank how you. I hope one day I'll write about my best friend, you know? Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a tribute, you know? And, you know, there's a lot of uh, just these memories you have of her. And it just so touched me. And then there's the, ch the chapters where you're taking care of everyone. You're taking care of both your mother and your father. Your three kids, uh, the two adopted and the, I think you had the, the son, uh, naturally later, right? Yes. And you're really run ragged because both your parents are, their health is starting to fail. And, but there's this scene with your father and I have, you know, daddy issues. My whole book starts with my dad's death. <laughs> uh, and um, I, I, you know, I wrote my book for my father because I had so oh, much regret. Right. And um, your dad tells you, you know, I was wrong, kid, kid, I'm paraphrasing here. He admires that life you've built for yourself and how you've um, created yourself. Uh, how did that feel, you know, writing that? And then, you know, how, how do you write about these? Cause it's hard, right? You're trying to recreate, um, these memories that you have of these conversations. It's, it's really strange because of course, some things when they happen in the moment, you have no idea their significance. And then later you realize, but this was, one of those moments where it was like, as it was happening, I was like, I can't believe this is really happening. This is, this is a major moment in my life. My, um, my father had a lot of health issues. Um, I, I grew up below the poverty line. My father had never graduated from the eighth grade. I grew up in the house he was born in with a midwife. His parents had come over from Italy. He was the youngest of seven brothers. Wow. Um, was a faith healer. His father had been a shepherd in Italy and worked at a factory in, in the United States. And my dad started working in a factory at 13. Um, and, you know, my mother was not from that world. Um, but she moved to our old neighborhood in order to be with my father. My father lived in a house with his mom. Um, and that was the way it was. And he was never leaving that neighborhood. And so she moved in. And I spent my entire life basically trying to get out of that neighborhood from until I was 18 and went away to college. And, um, you know, it was not looked fondly upon by many of the people around me. I mean, there was a pervasive sense of like, she thinks she's too good. Um, why, you know, why doesn't she fit in? Why doesn't, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, and 
And it was a source of shame for me because I wanted to fit in. You know, my neighborhood was like a small town. Everyone knew everyone. And my father was from a well known family in the neighborhood that were, you know, he had had a lot of older brothers who also had a lot of kids. I had about 60 cousins in like a four block radius, <laughs> um, you know, so, so no one was more upset than I was by the fact that I just did not fit into the environment. But, um, but I didn't. And, and it was a, a, an irreversible fact of, of nature. And, um, and I, wanted very early a different kind of life. And I started writing when I was four years old. I was working on novels by the time I was 10. Um, I was always absolutely, you know, geared towards going to college and so forth. And I left home at at 18 and went not very far away to Wisconsin, to Madison, Wisconsin, to go to school. But um, my dad wept when I left home and, and he told my mother, like, maybe, maybe she'll fail out, like hopefully. Wow. So, so I'd come home. And so to kind of fast forward to me being in my early to mid forties and my father had been living downstairs for me since 1999. Um, at this point, it's around 2013, you know, and, um, and, uh, he'd been ill a great deal of that time, most of that time. And my mother and I took care of him in 2014. He got a caregiver. Um, but he, you know, he was a witness to my life, but to like a very sanitized, pretty version of my life. Like he saw, you know, this idyllic family and so forth. I didn't confide in him about, you know, my inner life. We didn't have that type of a relationship. But even so, I always felt like, what does he think of what I'm yeah. of what I've done? Is he disappointed in me like that? I didn't I didn't do things the way he expected me to do them. And there was just a day very shortly before he stopped being regularly lucid where he said he sort of shouted at me like I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> like I was full of shit, like, you know, and and basically said to me, you know, I used to constantly you know, tell you to go hang out on the corner with the other girls. And like, I wanted you to get a boyfriend and I wanted you to be popular and to fit in. And I thought this was what would give you a good life. And, you know, you ended up with the kind of life I didn't know existed. I couldn't have imagined it because I didn't know it existed. And to hear him say that was really complex because on the one hand I had longed to hear that my entire life, but on the mm-hmm. other hand, by the time he said it, my life was already disintegrating in, in many ways. And and the life that he saw and was giving me approval for was a life that I was already starting to move away from. And um and so that was, you know, it was complex. It was a beautiful but loaded moment. Um you know, that, and we never had another conversation like that again. It's so, it's so interesting. I don't know why I'm getting feedback. Hold on a second. Um, okay. I think that's better. Sorry, doctor. Can you still hear me? I can't. Okay, I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm a little funny now, though, now that you took those off. Should I put mine on? I don't think so. Hold on. Okay. 
I don't know if it's my headphones. I thought maybe it was my headphones. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, there we go. It disappeared. Okay. So what's really interesting is coming myself from a very blue collar background. It's, I think that's what really drew me into your book is throughout your narrative, you know, we're learning all these things that's going on and you kind of jump around in time a little bit, but there's also this really sense of you have created this life. You have gotten out of, of that neighborhood. You, you are in the upper class, white collar, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I do wanted that, but then, you know, everything falls apart. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, but what I love the most is this, your name, the prose is so empowering. I mean, really your book is a book about feminism and about being true to yourself. And so how does your version of feminism, um, or your quest for equality, whatever you want to call it, your quest to be true to yourself and to being, you know, a woman, how does, how does that figure into the book? Um, so, I mean, I think you're you're right that feminism is the central it's the central tenet of the book. Um, and I considered myself a feminist from the age of maybe ten or eleven years old. Um, in a in the land feminism forgot in my neighborhood. I mean, obviously, like I had no um, context for that, but I was often mocked at school, like, oh, she's on her feminist high horse. <laughs> And I, um, you know, I write in the book about the fact that, like, I worshipped Joyce Davenport from Hill Street Blues. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I just was really starving for models of, um, you know, these these independent women who had who had um, complex lives, like who had lives that entailed careers and lives that entailed sexual agency and and, you know, who were not only defined by their relationship with men and their relationships as mothers. Um, but, you know, one of the things that happened, and I think happened to a lot of women who were raised with second wave feminism, is that, you know, I, I thought if I did X, Y, and Z, and I got from, you know, from A to B, like all those things would just disappear. They'd evaporate and suddenly I'd be in sort of like this feminist utopia because <laughs> I was in graduate school or because I had a certain amount of money or because my, you know, people around me all voted progressively or whatever. And, um, you know, it, it was untrue in a vast variety of ways. And um, And one of the ways in which it was most untrue was that I had allowed myself to become pretty much completely financially dependent um, within my marriage. And I, I did not, um, it's really complex because I am not a person who thinks that our identity should be defined by our ability to make money. I'm not particularly wedded to capitalism. If anything, I think like, uh, you know, I think it's it's seen its day and can move along. Um, and yet we live in a culture where people don't have agency when they don't have their own money. And um, and so I had really allowed myself, my kids, my parents like to all 
become economically dependent in this situation that presumes an absolutely static happily ever after marriage um, in which certainly the woman who, who is the financially dependent one should be sitting there like, Oh, please. I hope my husband never leaves me because what will I do? Right. And, and so what happens when and the power dynamic of that, right? You know, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is complex and not specific to me, um, right. Right. you know, but like, but what happens when it's actually the, the woman in that situation who no longer wants to be in the marriage and yet has, has, herself very much willingly been a co-participant in a situation in which she has no agency of her own and all the people closest to her are financially dependent on the system of her marriage. And, and that is, um, that's systemic. You know, we can say that that is a patriarchal system, but that is not the same thing as saying that is the fault of the man in that system. Like we all as a culture, and I don't want to talk about, you know, the younger generation, but I'm talking about, you know, my, my generation, um, you know, I worked, I taught, I, I taught in MFA programs. I had three books published, you know, I mean, I, you know, I had my own book press. I thought I was an independent woman and it wasn't until I really began to realize that I needed out of my marriage that I began to untangle how absolutely not independent I was and how much so many people in the system of my life, including myself, had set this situation up in which my leaving would cause a certain amount of devastation for for a number of people. Yeah. And I I love towards the end of the book, you say, you know, matter what happens with any relationship, romantic relationship you're in, you were the breadwinner by that point. You, You had your power back. And that's why the book is so empowering because it's not this, um, romantic tale that makes things less complicated than they are because some people might say oh what a great husband he supported you and your parents and the kids what a great provider you know and yeah yeah that's important but um it's also problematic when you know when you're dependent on one person for everything financially I I get it you know and you lose a sense of yourself in that and my mom you know she uh, worked full time, two jobs at a, as a waitress um, and at Circle K. My dad was a truck driver. He bought a bar. So my mom was pretty much the breadwinner. And that's hard, too. But she didn't have a choice, really. But now I look back and I think, wow, what kind of what was their power dynamic? You know, and, you know, and my she had a bar as well, actually, for a while. Um, that was like, you know, his is his sort of like his highest on the hog period was when he also owned a bar. Um, But my dad's dream, he wanted to be Archie Bunker and have Archie Bunker's place, that bar, you know, but it's definitely, it's really, it's true. It's very financially um, and politically and emotionally sticky because, um, you know, heteronormative marriage, patriarchal marriage, which, you know, again, educated Feminist women enter willfully, you know, and and, and with full agency. Um, it does not leave room for 
a woman to decide that she may have moved to a place in her life where that is no longer a relationship that, that, you know, that is good for her or that she feels herself in anymore. It doesn't leave room for a woman to have an inner life and to change beyond a certain stage. And there is obviously, of course, genuine gratitude um, when you're in a situation like that for the fact that, you know, your, your family is leading a different kind of life than the one that, that I had grown up in. But we have this idea in this culture, and obviously our divorce statistics reflect it, and 70% of divorces are initiated by women. And among more educated women, it goes up to 90%. So, So we have a system in which they're clearly, you know, women are still earning less money than men, even when they are doing the same job, much less mm-hmm. if they're in a situation like myself, where they're primarily caregiving other people and working volunteer nonprofit or adjunct work, you know. But even women, if, say, they're an attorney, they're making less money than their husband, who's also an attorney. And when you're in those kinds of situations, it's like you're not really allowed to need something different and and you're supposed to remain static for kind of the good of the system. And I think that, you know, our divorce statistics don't reflect that reality, but it continues to be the story we all live under. And, you know, and so there's something, there's a schism there that, you know, that my book is just one one of many books that is kind of like looking at this from a particular angle and saying, you know, what, like, how can it be true that so many women are still economically dependent within marriage? And yet the more education a woman gets, and even irrespective of education, women are initiating all of these divorces, heteronormative marriage, and women's economic freedom somehow are not um they're they're not in a conversation with each other they are not in the same conversation they're not and you know there's that i always say this is a joke but i think the statistics bear it out that the happiest people are married men and single women that's and, what the statistics do in fact bear out i mean i'm married again so i yeah you know, me, i mean i've been married for you know i mean I, i'm remarried but um but you know that that is, in fact, what research does bear out is that, you know, men do very well when married and women do better when not married. And, um, and you know, so we have to look at that situation and interrogate it, you know, and, yeah. and try to excavate it. And it's not really about any one couple and what broke up one couple or, you know, what one couple's financial situation is it's a mirror for a very large situation out there in the world. Yeah. And you can take the anecdotal evidence that we know women are caretakers. We know we do more of the emotional labor and give more of that capital away, even at work. You know, I'll say this as an attorney and I work in mental health. We're all women in my unit because these are the clients that need the most care. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we want to bring some testosterone in, but I mean, it's hard because you got to find the right dude that has the empathy and has, you know, can multitask. <laughs> Let's well, just talk about multitasking. Still very, I mean, obviously, of course it's changing and it's, it's yeah. improving, but there are still professions that are almost exclusively women and, and then professions that are, you know, not almost exclusively, but very predominantly male. And, um, and the earning differential between those that fall down those kind of like stereotypically gendered lines is significant. I mean, elementary school teachers do not make as much money as like people in technology, you know, so or investment banking. Yeah. You know, so, so it, it's a very, um, we, you know, we live in a really, a really coded um, economic system. Yeah. And we also, as women have to value our work more and speak up, which I'm learning to do. And as a corporate lawyer, I would sit with the dude and we were doing like a document review. And after 12 hours of work, I would, I'd say, okay, I'm, I'm saying I work nine hours billable. He'd be like, I'm at 11.5. What kind of breaks did you take? We're sitting here together, but I was taking off time for all this stuff, devaluing myself. And women tend to do that. And we, as women, and your book talks about this. We need to take our power back and value ourselves and value our time and our energy and what we bring to the table as with our multitasking and empathy and our leadership, a different kind of leadership. It might well, not be a corporate leadership, but I for was me, talking yeah. about this um, in a, I just came from an event and I was just kind of talking about the fact that in our generation and I'm 53, so I'm saying our I'm 50. Yeah. You know, but um you know, we were still similar to the boomer generation, Gen X, very much, um, you know, to get ahead, you had to follow more patriarchal norms and you were very encouraged to look at yourself and pat yourself on the back as a woman if you could be one of the guys, if you could get along in an environment of men. And it was very much just assumed that that was the way to attain power and that that was the way to be financially compensated, to attain prestige, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Claire V. Watkins writes about this and on pandering, you know, in the literary world, like just essentially the way that in all ways, um, patriarchal behavior was considered the norm and anything that deviates from it is niche or other, et cetera. And, and this, you know, certainly doesn't only impact women. I mean, it impacts a lot of people who don't fall into that. And it also impacts the men who have been trained to not develop empathy, to not develop caregiving, um, because they're basically fed that their worth is going to be strictly through prestige, economics, power. Um, I, I cite in my book, women are viewed as their most attractive between 18 and 23, literally, specifically. Statistically, this is true. This is insane and, and wow. repulsive and makes you want to throw up a little in your mouth. You know, yeah, I'm like, I'm 50. I look good. Sorry. Men are viewed as their most attractive between 46 and 50. Now, so you have a situation where men are viewed as their peak attractiveness at the point where they're probably at the apex of their careers. Mm -hmm. Women are viewed as their peak attractiveness for youthful beauty and childbearing potential, right? And so these are your attractive men 
basically being geared towards finding these to be your attractive women. And thankfully, in this post-Me Too generation, that dynamic is, is being excavated and interrogated because it's like, yes, these women are older, you know, above the age of consent, but should a 20 year old woman be involved with a 46 year old man? I mean, obviously there's no one answer across the board in all situations. Both people are consenting adults, but it's like, but generally speaking, that's a really creepy power dynamic we're talking about. And why are young women being so fetishized in a way that in a sense makes women who are men's own age, um, these sort of like matronly more marginalized figures who are not thought to be vibrant in the world, who are thought to have been already happened to, you know, who are thought to basically be somebody's mother, somebody, you know, like, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, there's just so much to it. There's so much more than, you know, than can be put in one book. And it's really a conversation that's across, you know, a lot of um, a, a lot of what we're thinking about, you know, over the last 50 years. Yeah. And I love it because, I mean, I feel like I'm just hitting my stride and I'm like, I think I'm the most fullest potential of myself when I'm 50. Right. I feel like that young yeah, I might have been what some might call prettier, whatever, but I didn't feel prettier at 20. Mm-hmm. I feel better now with who I am, accepting my body, accepting my size, accepting my, you know, issues I have, but loving myself and being accomplished, right? Having a law career, writing a, two books, and you, you know, all the things you've accomplished, it makes you a more beautiful person. And I, you know, society's expectation and what men think when I, when someone walks by, whether they see me as matronly, I don't even care anymore. I'm like, you know, I look good. I'm going to do my makeup for my girlfriends and my drag queen friends and do my eyelashes and stuff because that's for me. That's for me, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, and, and I just think that it's a system that honestly works for very few people Mm -hmm. at the very top of it. Yeah. And and we see this reflected in our political system. I mean, I won't veer too far off into that. I know we're to talk about the book and so forth, but like, but we see that, you know, I mean, this system isn't doing even the vast majority of like white cis men any favor. Right. You know, this is a system that benefits a very small group of men in power. And somehow everyone else has been you know, socialized to believe that if only we can get part of that pie and it's a competition for part of that pie. And instead of looking at, wait, what are all the things that all these other people who are not benefiting from this system have in common and, and in solidarity with one another. And instead there's generally a bunch of just like infighting and, and, and not having solidarity because people, you know, People basically are often looking for others to other as reasons that they don't have power. We see this in like working class, like blue collar white men um, who vote against their own political and, and financial interests. And in not to quite the same degree, but to a very distressing percentage, white women doing the same. 
Yeah, and even some Latin cultures, you know, sure. depending yeah. on what part we're talking about. I'm going to show a comment from Victoria Waddle, who's a librarian um, and an educator that I know very well. She wrote a wonderful book herself, a couple of wonderful books. She said, I bought the hardback of Blow Your House Down a while back um, through the Writer's Bridge support group. Um, she moved your book to the top of the reading stack. Uh, she says... It is the most honest book I've ever read. Well, thank you. Thank you, Victoria. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you, Victoria. And she writes beautiful reviews, by the way. I'm sure she'll review your book. Um, and, you know, that that's the thing. It's that honesty that I'm always drawn to. I've been known as an oversharer about my infertility, my hemorrhoid surgery, my, um, my pain I've dealt with. And, you know, that's what touched me, too, is your discussion of pain that no one talks about. We don't talk about these conditions, but we live with them. And I lived with mine for 10 years. And after I had my surgery, my whole life has changed. Sure. And, um, you know, the, the honesty, you, you can't fake it. You know, memoir reveals a lot. And um, there's this quote you say um, by Hemingway, where you say that you can come together at your broken places. Was writing this book a way of reconciliation and healing? I mean, really, in a way? So I think it's a really complex issue that I that I talk a lot about, of course, in, in writing workshops. I teach a lot. Um, you know, memoir is not, of course, the the cathartic, you know, like the 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 sky parts and we're healed experience that a lot of people expect it to be going in either because they attend a reading and they just think that that's what you must have achieved or because mm -hmm. they want to write a memoir because they want to heal their trauma. Um, often you re-traumatize yourself before you get better. And, and that, you know, and I think that I'm fortunate because I was already part of a literary community as a, as a fiction writer where I knew a lot of people who had written memoirs and, and I was forewarned, you know, so um, writing, you know, writing a memoir that doesn't always make you look great and that explores some of the hardest things that have ever happened to you, some of the most painful things that have ever happened to you, some of which were random bad luck and some of which were of your own doing, you know, um, you don't write that stuff and then walk away thinking like, wow, I feel so much better. Um, I mean, writing the book wrecked me, you know, and, um, and then the lead and having up, to write about others, I'm sure must've you been, know, and the lead up to publication, you know, where you're like, Holy crap. I had not really occurred to me that now I have to walk out to my car and my neighbors might have read this book. You know, I mean, like, you don't, you know, you're writing. And even when you've got other books out, because for me, I wasn't a memoirist, you know, so, so you're writing and it doesn't really occur to you that anyone's ever really going to read it. And then suddenly you find yourself in the process of, of course, revision and editing and, and it's sinking in like, oh, I'm really putting this out there. And you know, so, so what Can I, I do a take back? Is it too late? Right. You know, I mean, my, my a memoir out and he, um, he used to email his editor all the time and be like, is, is it too late for me to pull the book? Like, you know, so it, it's, 
it's hard. And, and, hard. and this is a universal truth because I think that we're all different in terms of like how ruthlessly our memoir may look at truth or difficult things or, or negative aspects of our own character and so forth. Um, but everyone who writes a memoir feels that they've revealed a lot about themselves and feels vulnerable. And, um, you know, so for me, I think the really fascinating thing has been that it's been reader response that has been the, the healing, um, the cathartic thing, the thing that has put me back together at the broken places. It was not the writing, which I don't even know if I, I wasn't really writing it even for me, like I started writing it for me. It was, parts of it were journal before they were, you know, crafted into memoir. Um, but, but you know, I was doing it because I genuinely believed that there were a dearth of of books about that kind of like full catastrophe living of middle aged women, mm-hmm. sexuality of middle aged women. Um, you know, blowing your life up once you're already in middle age and a, and a mother um, having physical disabilities or ailments and still being a sexual person. Like I felt as though a lot of these things, there's just not enough. There's not enough out there talking about these things. So I, I felt a very driven sense that I was trying to write the book I needed when I was going through some of these things, because if I needed it, I'm not special. Someone else does too. And, but that was very abstract. And then suddenly the book was in the world and it wasn't really until I began to hear from those people that it really started to make sense. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking that right before you said it, that, you know, when you started answering that, maybe it was, healing for me in the sense that I could identify with this character because always you know there's the character in the book and there's you with the narrator in this book who has dealt with so much yet keeps on persevering you know pain and and then after your divorce or during your divorce you get cancer mm-hmm. and um and that was very I was like oh my goodness she lost her best friend she lost her father and then you lose your mother and it's like and then you go into this um meta you you know multiplicity of universes the sliding doors concept like what if in another universe i have my old life still and what would that look like i just thought it was fascinating i mean and the way you structured the book you also put the reader at somewhat of a distance sometimes and from a crafts perspective i loved it because there's that section where you call it the dictionary a short dictionary of mutually un, un, understood words starts at page 187 and you kind of, um, you um, define these terms. Between really, my then lover and, and myself. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's basically, so it's a complete rip off of Milan Kundera as a short dictionary of, of misunderstood yeah. words and unbearable lightness of being between Sabina and Franz. Mm-hmm. And, and I riff on it by having a dictionary of mutually understood words mm-hmm. um, in which where I essentially chart the progression of my affair um, and and what it not so much during its clandestine period, but um, but what it is like to take a very passionate, intense, you know, beautiful, explosive love affair from the realm of it being a secret, it being 
the periphery of your on the ground life and trying to kind of move from that so-called affair bubble into a real space as, as a couple. And, um, and I think that that's also an unexplored terrain. Like too, too often it's like, and I chose blank happily ever, you know, like, and, and, and it's not, I, I don't think it's a book about, you know, I, I always call it the, the twilight analogy where it's like, honey, there's more to life than the werewolf and or the vampire. Like, you know, you don't have to just <laughs> choose between one of these two. And like, then it, 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 the end, you know, like, so, so for me, a, a big part of it was coming to the realization that like what I was choosing was, was me. I was, yeah, I was choosing my own ability to be a, a real person, whatever that was going to look like. And, and for a while, it was none too clear at all that that would look like my lover and myself joining our lives. Like it was very difficult and complicated. And so that section of the book is actually addressed. Um, you know, it's it's a direct address to him. It, it's a mm. you know, he's the you that is addressed, mm. and it sort of takes us through some of those really difficult transitions where we we mutually understood something, but once we were in the real world with it, it didn't look like what we thought we mutually understood, you know, and having to kind of re-navigate that. Yeah. I mean, relationships are complicated. Marriage is complicated. You know, (laughs) everything's so complicated. And, you know, we watch these movies and they make it look romantic and it's actually the opposite. Um, True love is actually not for me, at least it's, it's kind of the anti-romance of it. I have a poem about that. And I just, I love the day-to-day banalities, right? That what is really what, when you can do those banalities with someone, that's true love. Um, can you give any of uh, people watching kind of hints for publishing? So this is your fifth book. And this one's, I mean, you're just doing a lot of media and you're getting some great reviews and you have some terrific blurbs. And it sounds like you have some uh, projects in the works with the, production side as far as turning something into a film or a tv series uh is there anything you could recommend to anyone as far as just if you're gonna you know a finding an agent finding a press i mean i i always i mean i've been doing this same advice circuit since the 90s because i've been an editor for over 25 Mm -hmm. years um you know i feel like we live of course in a very short attention span society and that definitely extends to how we view publishing. Um, and I think that there really are several things that are very important in a person's journey to publishing and, and not just being in a rush to meet, you know, a deadline of a certain age or a deadline of like, wow, I finished the draft of this book. It better be published by next month, you know. So I, I talk a lot about getting involved in the literary community, um, being an extremely avid reader, not only of published material, but also if at all possible, working with a literary magazine or with a, a, a book press um, where you can read things that are being submitted so that you get a sense of that. And I mean, like not everyone can 
economically afford to, you know, like run their own press or something. But everybody's got the time. It's it's a Netflix movie. Like everybody's got yeah. the time to read a few stories a month, like for a magazine or something. And you really start to get a sense of what's out there. You learn to be a better writer. You learn like what what cliches to avoid. You learn what what is the difference between a story that is really competent and good and oh you'd be perfectly proud to publish this versus the one that like you will think about it 10 years later if you didn't get it like <laughs> and that it will haunt you and that you must have this piece you know as an editor and and what you would do to a piece like how you would work with the author on the piece so all of that i recommend getting involved with those things as intimately as it is possible for a person's lifestyle and situation to permit them, but also to take the time to revise. Like, and, and I particularly, I feel like particularly if you are a creative nonfiction writer, like I think that it is widely understood that a person doesn't create like a really great novel by just sort of like throwing all their first ideas on the page, calling it done and and running out to get their book deal. Yep. But not enough people really understand how curated and crafted the art of creative nonfiction is. It's not your diary. It's not like, here's some stuff that happened to me. Like you really have to wrestle with that material and turn it into something that is a larger lens than just your life. It has to be, you know, the prose has to be interesting and reflective, like form and content have to reflect. I always recommend Pam Houston's Corn Maze, which I think is a, mm. an essay that is sort of like, you know, the absolute pinnacle of form and content mirroring each other and that people can learn so much from it. But, you know, but but avidly reading memoirs of non-celebrities, yeah. of artists, of like going back to people like Maxine Hong Kingston mm -hmm. and you know, looking at what makes a memoir bigger than the writer, what makes a memoir more interesting than just sort of like, oh, some really weird stuff happened to this person, you know, like, and, and that makes you take away something about the world. And I feel like, you know, take your time to develop that, get readers who you trust, join a writing group, you know, do things that you need to hone your craft and don't just jump at like the first, you know, I'll just self-publish this or oh. I'll just give it to the first agent who says yes, even though I don't never heard of any of their clients and they don't sell anything similar to my book. Like, you know, is to have the faith in your story to give it time and that, you know, we're in a culture that emphasizes having a platform and, and, and like promoting yourself like so much, but what does any of that mean if you're not behind the art that you're making? Yeah. Cause in the end, when your book goes out there, you're going to have to live with the product you put out there. And, you know, my book took 15 years to get out into the world and I changed so much over it. But the best part of the journey, yeah, it's the, having the book finally after all those years, but it's that community I've built Absolutely. with other writers in Macondo and Bona with my podcast, trying to promote the writers that I love. Because yes. I have always been an avid reader, and I think I write because I love to read, right? Yeah, absolutely, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we write because books saved our lives. We write because books gave us a window into some other reality we didn't know existed yeah. that gave us hope. 
Um, we write the book we needed to read when we were in crisis. Like, you know, yes, a book needs to entertain, obviously, you know, it, it you know, if, if you're boring your reader, these other lofty aims don't, don't mean much, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know, for many of us, we're not just trying to temporarily entertain. We're actually trying to enter into a cultural dialogue mm. that the books that mattered to us are part of and that go on after after us, you know, whether obviously like most of us are not going to be Hemingway and be a household name, but like, you know, even just the idea that 50 years from now, somebody's daughter would find a book that meant a lot to their mother who wrote to me and, and made me believe that my story was bigger than myself, you know, and, and that that can go on and that all books continue to speak to each other across generations. Wow. Well said, you know, and I think that universally out the universality of your book, uh, blow your house down it will touch so many people women men non-binary just everyone pick up this book you can find it on her uh, on her website you can get links but it's everywhere uh genofrangelo.org really quick we have about three minutes you wrote the recent article about desire um, for psychology today and i love your column i I really do i i'm a mental health lawyer so i love anything related to psychology but that concept of women's desire or anyone's desire really um there's a show called uh, Life and Bath with Amy Schumer, and she has a whole episode about women telling men what they want sexually. I've heard about that. I've heard about that. I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. It's fantastic. And then I read your article, and I was like, wow, we as women, men, everyone really just need to get over the stigmas of talking about sex and just say what we want from our partner. The, the essay is called Three Components of Desire, and it basically just talks about the fact that you know, we, I, I break it down into three areas. One is the fantasy. So sort of like, you know, sometimes we really want to live our fantasies and sometimes we don't at all, but like our sexual fantasies are not necessarily within our control. They're not even necessarily the things that would give us pleasure in real life, or sometimes they are, but we're too afraid to talk about them. Um, you know, and then there's the physical in terms of just what gives you pleasure? How do you like to be touched? What do you love? What do you not love? You know, and then there's also the psychological, which has to do with the fact that sex is a really intimate conversation you're having with someone and that there are reasons to engage in this conversation and to be curious and open to other people's desires, even if they don't line up perfectly with your own, that there are reasons, like I think we're a very product-oriented sexual culture. And you know, obviously the product for, for many eons was like the male orgasm, but then we can become very product or, or you know, oriented where it's like, oh, well, now it's all about like the female also <laughs> having an orgasm, you know, but it's like, Sex is I'll not just take a back rub. <laughs> you know, sex is not just defined in that way. It's not, you know, it's not always phallocentric. It's not always about a product of orgasm. It's not always about, you know, intercourse. It's it. There's all these different forms of sexual expression, and you know, you expand your own horizons when you're willing to deeply listen to someone and be interested in what they want and why they want it 
And how does that dialogue with what you want and why you want it? And people just, I think, don't communicate enough about deep desire. It's very embarrassing and shameful to many, many people. And it is a big leap of faith and act of trust. And so having to also like to realize that if we want our own desires met and we want people to be receptive to hearing what we want, we also need to kind of actively listen and and be participatory in what our partners have like psychologically inside of them about their sexuality as long as everything is safe and consensual, you know, it being a conversation and not just a product. Yeah. And it it makes me think I'm looking at it from the female lens. Like maybe I need to listen to my husband more about what he wants, what he Mm -hmm. desires, his fantasies. I think that's important to not just make it um, like a self-absorbed thing where it's narcissism, what what we want, Mm -hmm. what I want. You know, if, if you're in an intimate relationship, the best intimacy is that conversation. That's absolutely right. It is not, it's not a gendered thing. I mean, there (laughs) may it may be less stigmatized for straight men to talk about their desire, but that does not by any means, you know, indicate that all straight men feel free to talk about their desire or that their partners are, are receptive. And, you know, and the more marginalized a person's identity may be, the more taboo they may feel that their desires are or that they've been judged so many times for their desires. And and there may be a lot of fear around that. And so part of of sexual satisfaction, it goes well beyond the physical. It's really a very emotional thing, particularly, of course, in a long-term relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to say, I love our conversation. I could talk to you for another hour easily. I, I urge everyone to go to your website Check out all of your books. Uh, you know, if they could ever take a class with you, I I could already tell it would be amazing. Check out your uh, your uh, articles on Psychology Today. I believe it's a blog. Is it a weekly? Yeah, it's, uh, it's monthly called Not the Norm. Mm, amazing. Um, so I want to say bye. thank you for being on. Thank you for giving me your time. Everyone, check out her book. Blow your house down. Oh my God, it's it'll blow your mind. It will blow your mind. And I love the cover art, by the way. And I love the oh, cover. Yes, I, I love the cover. And um, a story, it's Blow Your House Down, a story of family, feminism, and treason. So thank you, Gina, for coming on. I'm going to give you a round of applause. And then I urge everyone to come back on and watch me April 27th. I have Alan Kalichi, Kalachi. He wrote Heart Like a Starfish. Uh, through Pelicanesis, and he also wrote 17 in Life by Bamboo Dart. He's a good friend of mine. He's a librarian, and he's a rock star, too. So uh, check us out on April 27th. You're going to love Alan. He's a good friend of mine. Um, His brother, Dennis, uh, helped publish my book with Bamboo Dart. So everyone, buy Gina's book, and have a great night. Bye, everybody. Mm -hmm.